0: All right, we're back in our study in Genesis today. And we have found in chapters 31 to 33 that Jacob is growing in his faith. He's acknowledged that God keeps his promises by being with Jacob, protecting and providing for him until he returns to the land of Canaan. He has struggled with God and with man and prevailed, earning him the name Israel. He has made amends with his brother Esau. After 20 long years, he finally arrives in Canaan. But as we all know, uh, life is unpredictable and our journey is strewn with obstacles along the way. We often take one step forward and two steps backward. We take a great stride in faith and then we fall back into fear and failure. And that's what we evidence in Genesis chapter 34 today. as Jacob has sojourned in Sukkoth and Shechem, uh, and had he not done so for a lengthy period of time, the incident that we read about this morning may never have occurred. The Lord's intention for him was to return to Bethel, where he made his vow to God, but Jacob has now been in these regions for at least 10 years since he returned from Haran. And as we read through the narrative, it's no surprise that we find no mention of God. None of the characters are depicted in a totally positive way. Some of them are downright horrible. An immoral violation results in gross retaliation. Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, is the victim, but she's guilty of a foolish indiscretion. Shechem, a prince in the land, is guilty of an immoral sexual violation of Dinah. Hamor is guilty of ignoring that violation and negotiating a treaty of marriage. Jacob is guilty of passivity and abdication of his leadership uh, in the family, and his sons are guilty of deceitful and cruel retribution. One commentator wrote this, In the last scene, Jacob exemplified bold leadership based on prudence and faith. In this scene, he exemplifies weak leadership based on prudence and and fear. And of course the god of Israel is pretty much out of the picture. Now this narrative also develops into a temptation that would void the promise of God. It introduces a threat to the separation of Israel from the inhabitants of the land. If the proposal of Hamor and Shechem is accepted, then Israel no longer maintains distinction from the nations of the world. Rather, she becomes incorporated into those nations. God demands separation from the world, not infiltration, not cooperation with it, or incorporation into it. So many are the lessons we learn from this tragic incident at Shechem. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word today. Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, that you do not uh, neglect putting into your word events that are entirely sinful and wrong to show us, Lord, how low we can go and how much we need a Savior. Uh, Lord, we realize that although we see a lot of uh, wrong actions here, that we too can be guilty of some of the same things. So, Lord, as we look through. Uh, this uh, sordid affair at Shechem, help us to realize that we need to uh, confer with you on all the decisions that we make, the direction of life that we take, so that we don't uh, experience the tragedies that resulted uh, from this event. So Lord, bless us as we look to your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin with the humiliation of Dinah, which uh, is in the first seven verses of chapter 34 this morning. And the catalyst of this tragic event uh, ensues from this venture of Dinah into the pagan culture of the land. We see that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And we find here that tragedy results from indiscreet decisions. And as far as we know, she is the only daughter in the family. She is likely the youngest born during Jacob's six years of additional service to Laban. The sons were born in that second seven-year period of a relationship with his wives. Now, that would make her a very young woman of marriageable age between the ages of 13 and 15. And again, we wonder, wow, that's pretty young to be married. But in that culture, a girl who passed through puberty was eligible for marriage. And it's mentioned five times, interestingly, in the passage that she was born to Jacob. So that stresses the father-daughter relationship in the narrative And as the only girl, we can imagine she was pampered probably by her mother and her older brothers and that she should have been by her father. So that adds pathos to what happens in this incident. Now, one eventful day, Dinah decides to go out and see the daughters of the land. Now, the verb to see means to look over. So she wanted to see what the women of the land were like what they did, how they acted, and we wonder, well, did she go out at this young age with parental permission or did she sneak out on her own? And it seems doubtful to me that her parents would have let such a young woman go out into that pagan culture without being escorted by someone in the family. If they did, then they were guilty of even more serious indiscretion. And this may well have been a secret adventure to seek out the girls, the daughters of the land who may have been closer to her age because nobody else in the family is even a girl. So at best, her action was a foolish indiscretion and at worst, a rebellious action. If she had never made that decision, a calamity would have been avoided. This is a good lesson for our parents and our young ladies. We need to protect our daughters from the evils of this world as much as we can. They need to be under our eye and tender care as they grow up and they mature. And what they learn about life and what they learn about the world needs to be filtered through the lens of Scripture rather than personal experience and it's far better for them to be overprotected than underprotected in the age in which we live. Young people also need to be obedient to the guidance of their parents and not try to venture off, sneak off into the world on their own to experience its allurements. Very seldom will you escape ill effects from those kind of adventures, and much tragedy results from indiscreet decisions. Now, Let's get into the uh, sordid part of it. Beginning at verse 2, we see Shechem's disgraceful violation. And here we are reminded that tragedy results from uncontrolled passions. We're told here that Shechem, uh, the son of Hamor, he's a prince of the country, perhaps the second most important person in that part of the land. He sees her, he takes her, he lays with her, he violates her. So everything that is revealed to us here uh, indicates a forceful act of rape. Now Dinah may have been foolish and indiscreet, but that was no reason for her to be taken advantage of. And the verb to violate has various shades of meaning. It can mean defile, mistreat, violate, rape, shame, and humiliation. And all that probably comes together here as she experiences this horrible thing. All of these describe the violent treatment by her of Shechem. But after this shameful act, his attitude toward her kind of softens. And it tells us here that he became strongly attracted to her. He speaks kindly to her. He goes on to say he loved her and he wants her for a wife. Now, at least that's uh, a better attitude. But uh, the cart was put before the horse and forcefulness came into this. It was a violent crime. And if he had been attracted to her in the first place, then he should have controlled himself and not violated her. He tries to make up for this after the fact by being kind and attempting to woo her as a wife. But there's no remorse shown on the part of Shechem or his father. And so that indicates to us that this pagan land, this culture uh, was, was very immoral the standards are very low and furthermore then he comes to his father and he really kind of demands his father to get this girl to be his wife now folks our society is not a whole lot better than shechem's our moral values have sunk so low that it wouldn't surprise me if someday rape was no longer a crime Pretty much everything else of a sexual nature is getting to be okay. This is something that's, expe- uh, uh, that's accepted in our society. Young people are not urged to subdue their passions and abstain from sex until they're, uh, they find their life partner. Rather, this has become an accepted and expected activity. Now, Christian young people need to reject the low standards of our society and adopt God, God's high expectations for his people. And again, much tragedy results from these uncontrolled passions. And only the Lord can help us to subdue them. Now, as the story goes on here, we have the reactions of Israel, and they are mixed reactions. First of all, in verses 5 and 6, we see Jacob's passivity. Jacob hears what happened. His daughter, his only daughter, has been defiled. His sons are out uh, taking care of the livestock. And Jacob holds his peace until they come. Now, most of you dads have a daughter, and I can't see you responding like that. If you had heard this uh, in this kind of a context, I think I would have sent somebody out to get the boys to come back. We need to talk about this and decide what we're going to do because this is absolutely wrong. But we find here that Jacob doesn't say anything. He seems not to be angry or upset, and we wonder why he didn't send out for his sons. So throughout this whole narrative, Jacob appears to be passive, weak, and detached. And so we see that this tragedy is really partially responsible for his passive attitude toward a great sin. Now, in the meantime, Hamar, Hamar comes because he wants to negotiate uh, for, his, uh, for uh, Dinah to be married to his son. Now, his sons come in from the field when they hear about it. We don't know exactly how they heard about it. Maybe uh, one of the servants went. But in verse 7, we're told the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard. Now, look at their response, because it's in contrast to their father. Uh, When they hear about this, they were grieved. They were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. And they were righteous in their initial anger, and they interpreted this event correctly. Now, the word grieved here, the verb means to be insulted or offended. It's use of God's emotional reaction to human wickedness. Now, Shechem had disgraced Israel. Incidentally, this is the first time we see the name Israel uh, in regard to the family, a family unit, rather than just Jacob. And uh, this shamed the family. It embarrassed the family. And it really demanded some kind of punishment or restitution. It was a violation that should never have occurred. So they're right in their anger over what has happened to their sister. Now, Jacob should have been equally upset, but we, we have little emotion on his part. However, their resolution to the situation went a whole lot farther than it should have. Righteous uh, indignation must be tempered with wise counsel. Otherwise, it too is going to have tragic results. One commentator wrote this. He said, once again, as in the birth of his sons... Jacob's household is dysfunctional because of his passivity. His sons are rash and unbridled, and he is passive. So no one in the story escapes censure. Jacob seems to be passive the whole time. His sons are passionate, and they're rightly indignant, but they act in a wrong way. Now let's see what happens here. In the next section, which is fairly long, we have some negotiations going on between the two tribes. And we see various proposals by the parties, and these proposals really are dangerous and deceitful. And we find here that tragedy again results from deceitful negotiations, deceitful relationships uh, between people. And the first thing we see here in verses 8 through 12 is that Hamor and Shechem uh, have a tempting proposition to Israel. Now, unlike Jacob and his sons that are responding in totally different ways, Hamor and Shechem are on the same page. They both want the same thing, so they're working in concert with each other. And Hamor puts forth the economic advantages of marrying Dinah. Uh, He says in verse 8, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you will dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell, trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. So there's going to be great economic advantage if our tribes mingled together and you give Dinah uh, to my son as a wife. Now, this all may look quite attractive and profitable for Jacob, uh, Jacob and his family, but there's a number of problems here and a number of dangers. First of all, again, there is no recognition on the part of Shechem that he has committed a very serious offense, a criminal offense in our day. Neither he nor his father admit that he violated and humiliated Dinah and that he deeply offended this family. And then Israel has already been dwelling in the land for several years and prospering God was blessing Jacob, and he didn't need to intermingle with a Canaanite tribe for that blessing to continue. So that really was kind of a moot point. And then Shechem pipes up in verse 11. He says to Jacob and uh, Dinah's brothers, "'Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give.'" Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. In other words, there's no price I won't pay to have your daughter. Again, an economic uh, ploy, so to speak. But you know what? That reduces Dinah to chattel, doesn't it? A prize that could be obtained by a payment. And that's how the sons interpret it. Because later on, the last verse of the chapter says, Are we, uh, you know, should we uh, let this person uh, treat our sister as a, a harlot, a prostitute? So that's how they took that. But the most dangerous aspect of this proposition was intermarriage between the two tribes. It was not God's intention that Israel be absorbed into Canaanite culture. They were to remain separate and distinct from it. They could not fulfill God's promises and purpose by intermingling with the people of the land. The Lord wants his people to maintain moral and spiritual distinction from the world in which they are. That's the only way that... Israel could be a blessing to the nations. And the same is true today for his church, for saved people. God doesn't want us to uh, uh, intermingle with the world around us. He wants us to be separate from it. And the world is always trying to entice us in different ways to hook up with it. Now, Jacob's sons then uh, have a counter proposal which is entirely deceitful. And they're taking charge of the negotiation in verse 13 instead of Jacob. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem. Now, Hamor came to Jacob. The sons come in, they're really upset. They're talking about it. They're probably devising some kind of a plan. And instead of Jacob taking control, and Jacob entering and being the leader, and Jacob really going to God to find out what we should do about this, he lets his sons take over the negotiation. He sits back. He's passive. Now the sons answer Shechem and Jacob, or Hamor, but they are speaking deceitfully because they had defiled their sister. That's okay. They should have been upset about this, but then what they did to resolve the issue was not right. And here's what they say. We can't do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, we will take your daughters to us, we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. There's the, there's the thing. They were never intended to be one people with the, with the Canaanites. They were to be separate. Now, of course, they're lying. They're, they're being deceitful. This was never their intention to go through with this. Uh, they are wanting to incapacitate the Shechemites so that they can carry out their own vigilante-style retribution. And if they refuse, verse 17, Well, if you'll not heed us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and be gone. Now, that kind of indicates to us that Dinah is not home. Dinah has been in the house of Hamor and Shechem up this whole time. Now, two serious wrongs are revealed in this action of Jacob's sons. First of all, we see that the sins of the fathers are being intensified in the sons. This trait of deceit was formerly used out of fear for one's life or to get what one wants, and now it's intensified to the point of being used for vengeance. If we go back in history, we remember that Abraham and Isaac both deceived rulers by saying their wife was their sister. And they did that because they feared the people of the land would kill them to obtain their wives. Instead of trusting God to protect them, they trusted themselves and their their deceitful ploy. Now, Jacob uh, comes along, and he really goes a step farther. He deceived his brother and his father to obtain a blessing and an inheritance that God had already promised to him. And now we come to Jacob's sons, it's even implanted further. His sons cover their plot of revenge in the cloak of deceit. And when sin is not dealt with in life, it may well be mimicked and intensified in the next generation. And deceitfulness results in tragedy sooner or later. The second thing here is they defile the religious significance of the rite of circumcision. Now, that was a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. And it showed that God was their God, and they were his people. And it reminded them that they were chosen and separated unto God out of all the nations of the world, And these young men were willing to use that sacred symbol to carry out their own sordid plot, to use it for selfish purposes that went against the will of God. And again, many crimes committed today um, are, are related to religion, to the abuse of religion. Child abuse, immorality, embezzlement, fraud, All these things can be done in the guise of religion by people who are in positions of authority and respect. And deceit, of course, is necessary to commit those kinds of of, uh, sins. And we have to be careful today that uh, we don't use our relationships with other Christians to try to take advantage of them in some kind of a way. Now, as the story continues here, Hamor and Shechem reveal their true motivation as they go now to their town and they get the men to comply with this condition. And verse 18, they're pleased with what goes on. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Now that doesn't mean that he was... um, a, a, a nice person, what that meant was he had the honorable position, the firstborn son, so he was in the most respected position as far as the, the family and the culture was concerned. It doesn't mean that he acted in some kind of an honorable way. So they're all happy about this situation. Now they have to go to the townspeople and convince them uh, to go through the rite of circumcision, which for uh, an adult male would be very painful. And uh, they're not above reproach in their method of obtaining support from these men as they come to, uh, to speak to them. Okay, they come to the gate of their city where these things are decided, and they spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Well, they thought they were, but they really weren't. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised. Now here's the key. Verse 23. Here's their true motivation. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Not a whole lot of sense of sharing there. What they want to do is incorporate this... A wealthy family into their culture, take everything that they have and make it their own, that's really what they wanted to do here. They want to uh, have the authority and that this family will be just in- incorporated into their tribe and make their tribe greater and better and stronger in the land. So they say, let's consent to them uh, so they'll dwell with us. And they convince the people in verse 24 to go through this operation. And uh, uh, as they go out of the city, we find that every one of them agree to their own uh, demise, as it turns out. So the men of the town agree to the proposition and they unknowingly seal their fate. And that brings us then to the vengeful retaliation of Jacob's sons in verses 25 to 31. And uh, tragedy results from this kind of activity, from vengeful actions. And we see it here, and uh, we're just kind of appalled and amazed. But it shows us how far we can go in our anger in our perhaps quest for what we believe is justice, and we take matters in our own hand. So first of all, we see the slaughter by Simeon and Levi. In verse 25, Now it came to pass on the third day when those men were in pain that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon, and Levi, Dinah's blood brothers, two of four, Each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They murdered them. Those men were in a condition where they really could not uh, sufficiently defend themselves. They were at the mercy of these men, which showed no mercy. They killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and they took Dinah from Shechem's house, and they went out. So uh, they commit a huge crime against this tribe. And then when that is completed, it appears that all the sons then come and participate in plundering the city. And we see that in verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. So they took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city, what was in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. So they just totally wiped out this town from their uh, their selfish, angry retribution. So what Hamor had intended to do to Israel has been reversed. They wanted to take everything that Israel had, but now through this situation, the Lord allows Israel to take everything they had and they reap what they sow because they saw no crime in what had uh, been committed by Shechem and by being uh, motivated to absorb Israel into their tribe. So that was, in a sense god's justice but again it wasn't right on the part of the sons of israel to do that but god oftentimes overrules even our sinful actions now the punishment again far exceeded the crime there should be justice there should be a righteous response shechem was guilty of a serious sin He should have been held accountable in some way. Later in the law, this offense would carry the death penalty. His father was also culpable because he did not rebuke his son, and he used this whole occasion to take advantage of the people of Israel. And his desire was to incorporate them into his culture and uh, dominate them and rule over them and profit by them. So his attitude, his motivation wasn't right either, and that would righteously be judged. But really, the rest of the people were deceived by their leaders, and they should have been spared. The action of the sons of Jacob was worthy of rebuke and judgment itself. Now that does come. As the story continues here, we do see a feeble rebuke on the part of Jacob in verse 30. Jacob said to his sons, uh, Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Me, me, I, I. You count how many times that Jacob is referring to himself? Jacob's only concern is how this outcome affects him. He's consumed by fear of what others may do to him because he's forgotten the promise of God to protect him and take care of him. And if he'd gone to the Lord, I'm sure the Lord would have given him wise counsel on how to handle this whole situation, but that never happened. Let me quote. Of course, fear is natural in such a situation. But the reasons Jacob gives for damning his sons betray him. He does not condemn them for the massacre, for abusing the right of circumcision, or even for a breach of contract. Rather, he protests that the consequences of their action have made him unpopular nor does he seem worried about uh, by his daughter's rape or the prospect of intermarriage with the Canaanites. He's only concerned about his own skin. And that's pretty clear from what he says here. Now his sons come right back and they justify their actions in verse 31 by saying, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Well, no, he shouldn't. But that doesn't give you the right to wipe out an entire city. Tragedy results from fearful attitudes and also remorseless actions. So Jacob, because he was fearful in this whole situation, kind of uh, made it worse. And then these sons, they're not at all remorseful. And we're going to find out as the story of Genesis continues, that the dysfunction of Jacob's family is, is going to uh, now turn on the sons. We're going to hear more about the sons and their lives and the fact that more tragedy will come before the family finally goes through a healing process through confessing their sin. So in all these different ways, we find that this tragic situation could have been avoided could have been avoided if Dinah stayed home. If Jacob had not abdicated his leadership role. If his sons had given the charge of negotiation to their father. If they had subdued their anger and tried to listen to God. God could have intervened at any moment in time. So what can we draw from all these things that we really kind of haven't already done? Well, first of all, youth is often marred by indiscretion. Every one of us as adults can go back and think of many times in our youth when we were indiscreet and did stupid things. We have a responsibility, though, to oversee the spiritual growth and development of our children and maybe avoid some of those things that we went through as we guide them in the way of biblical wisdom. Young people also are responsible to submit to the leadership of their parents and not try going off uh, sneaking on their own. It gets you into trouble. We also see here that the human spirit is full of improper passions that can only be subdued by the Holy Spirit of God. What God intends for good can become evil if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to harness our desires to the will of God. Then nothing good is accomplished by deceitful means. We might think it does, but it doesn't. Righteous indignation cannot devolve into vengeful retribution. There's much injustice in the world that we must trust God to deal with. And when wrong behavior occurs closer to home in our families, in our church, well, God revealed to us the way which those things are to be handled and resolved. And when we take matters in our own hands without God's direction, we may soon fall into sin ourselves. Then we find that fear and passivity are the devil's means by which we shirk our Christian duty to stand up for what is right and holy. As God's people, we should stand for justice, righteousness, and morality based on God's word. We do this in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our government, everywhere. And it doesn't matter how odious we may look to the world, we need to fear God rather than men. Jacob didn't do that. And finally, although the Lord is absent from this passage, His name is not mentioned, He has not gone to, it still is a subtle reminder to us of His mercy and His grace. Even his chosen people commit heinous acts from time to time. He's long-suffering toward them. He's patient with them. He doesn't immediately judge them. He's always operating the sphere of grace. And he's the same with us when we step over the line of righteous thinking and doing. But we certainly don't want to tempt God in that way either. So in all these ways, we see a lot of good applications for the day in which we live, and realizing that a lot of things lead to tragedy that can only be avoided as we put our faith and trust in the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we look to this sad passage of scripture, uh, to not be overly judgmental because we've been guilty of some of the same things. We sometimes have made indiscreet decisions. We have stepped out of your will. We have submitted to our selfish passions. Uh, We have been uh, deceitful from time to time. And Lord, we pray you forgive us, even as Evidently, you forgave these men over time. But Lord, help us realize that the more uh, selfish decisions we make and the selfish attitudes and wrong actions that come from them uh, end up tragically oftentimes. We pray, Lord, you help us to avoid these things as we submit to your spirit and your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat>